Hi, welcome back to the I Love Labs podcast. I'm Sally Sykes. I'm a functional medicine health coach and your labs expert by way of being a patient and uh, becoming a health coach and analyzing labs um, with the help of providers for my coaching clients to try to get to the root cause of your symptoms, whether it's you know weight loss resistance or hormone imbalance, thyroid issues, um, it, dealing with insomnia, hair loss, mood issues, um, fertility issues, you name it. Um, cognition is especially close to my heart, as I mentioned last time on my first podcast, because my father died of Alzheimer's, um, really. So everything I do, um, when I'm looking at labs, um, I'm looking at it from a, an optimization standpoint, trying to get you optimal versus normal so that you can avoid a lot of the chronic diseases of aging, like Alzheimer's disease, but also, you know, insulin resistance and heart disease, osteoporosis and all of the above. Um, today's episode is going to be on GLP-1 medications like semaglutide, terzepatide, otherwise known as Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjaro. Um, this is a topic that is probably where I get most of my questions and where I have most of, most of my coaching clients. Um, most people are coming to me trying to lose weight or trying to optimize their, um, their metabolisms. Um, mostly in middle age, but I have a lot of patients, you know, from, you know, 18 all the way to their, to their eighties. So there's really no age limit to, to which these are, um, haven't been impactful for people. And so what I wanted to talk about today is, you know, kind of what are these medications? There are a lot, there's a lot of misinformation out there about them. How can they be best used? Um, what do I see uh, in practice? You know, what are the, the most successful patients? What are their providers doing? So that when you talk to your doctor, if you choose to about these medications, you'll be better informed. You can ask better questions. Um, and um, just let you know what these medications are all about. And we're learning more and more about them every single day, which is very exciting. Um, first of all, you know, what, what are these medications? What are GLP-1 agonists? Um, what is semaglutide? What is terzepatide? So these are diabetes medications that have actually been in use since 2005. The first one, GLP-1 medication was approved in 2005. It was called exenatide. Some of these medications are hard to say. Um, it was a, an injection that you had to do twice a day. Um, so that was, I think, one of the issues with um, having people use it. It's a little difficult to think about incorporating twice daily injections into your lifestyle. Um, then we got up to ones like liraglutide, which were once daily. But then we're really finally broke through with semaglutide and terzepatide, which are longer acting and they only have to be injected once weekly. And these are small subcutaneous injections. Um, if this is something you're thinking about and you have needle phobia, you're not alone. Um, there's a big difference between small subcutaneous injections um, and like the flu shot that you get. That's an intramuscular injection. Those are much bigger, thicker needles. They are, they are more painful. Um, the small insulin needles that are used in a semaglutide or terzepatide injection are much, much smaller, very tiny. I have yet to have any patient um, drop out or choose not to try the medication due to 
that issue once they've seen the needle and once they've tried it once at least. Um, it tends to be a little bit like those um, NutriSense or Levels Health ads that you see on Instagram maybe, or maybe that you hear this now, you'll, your phone will hear it and you'll start getting those ads, but they show people putting on their um, continuous glucose monitors on their arms and they're scared and they have this little face like, oh no, it's going to hurt. And then they go, and it doesn't hurt at all. And then their face goes, oh, that was it. And that's basically the same um, reaction that most patients have to, to doing these medications, either at home or getting them in, uh, in clinic, depending on how you want to do it. So there are different ways that you can do it. Um, so these medications were originally approved for, for patients with diabetes, but they found that pa these patients were losing weight. In fact, 70% lose at least 10% of their body weight, 50% lose at least 15% of their body weight, and 33% lose at least 20% of their body weight, which is comparable to bariatric surgery, which is really exciting because, of course, bariatric surgery is a surgery. It comes with the risks that, that, that come with general anesthesia. Not only that, um, it, it changes your ability to absorb nutrients. And of course that becomes an issue sometimes after the um, surgery. And those surgeries can fail because if you start eating the same amount that you do, your stomach will just grow again. And so you end up with the same problem. So um, this has been you know, a life-saving treatment obviously for diabetics, but also for people who just have never been able to lose weight no matter what they do, um, even if they're eating perfectly. Um, and a lot of those people can have underlying thyroid disorders, um, hormone imbalances, and we'll talk about that in a, in a moment as well. But just to give you an overview of these medications. So these are FDA approved for patients with BMIs of over 30, or if your BMI is over 27 and you have one pre-existing, at least one pre-existing comorbidity. So that means like another disease, like high blood pressure, diabetes, um, something like that. Um, however, as you probably know, these are like almost every other medication out there. They're FDA approved for one thing, but almost always are having prescribers prescribe them off label for a whole host of other things. So you probably know lots of people, friends who are on these medications at smaller doses. They're injecting less frequently. They're not in the overweight category even. They might be just even the higher end of normal, but they have a history of heart disease or diabetes or dementia, or they are carrying all their weight in their abdomen and they have fatty liver, or they have PCOS and they're trying to uh, return um, restore fertility so they can get pregnant. So there, it just depends. This is what I always say is that, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm a health coach. And so it's really important if you're considering these medications to, to realize you need to work with your own doctor to decide if these are right for you, but just know that your doctor may be considering all kinds of things when deciding whether they're right for you. And so um, and there are lots of different ways that different providers are using them. And so I'm going to kind of let you have, let you take a peek into the window of what I see kind of behind the scenes as a health coach, because all of my health coach clients are working with primary care providers. Um, and I hear back from them of how their providers are prescribing it, how they are helping them to uh, maximize results, minimize side effects. Um, and there are some amazing providers out there doing really great things with these medications, um, to, to get the most out of them. And so I thought I would share that with you all here. Um, so standard dosing for these medications is gonna be 0.25 milligrams every week for the first four weeks. Then it's doubled to 0.5 milligrams for the next four weeks. Then it goes up to one milligram for the next four weeks, then 1.7 milligrams, then the highest dose is 2.4 milligrams a week um, of semaglutide. 
um, trisepatide is dosed slightly differently. I'm going to be focusing more on semaglutide in this uh, podcast episode. And the reason why I think trisepatide is an amazing medication, but it is still cost prohibitive for most patients. It is much, much more expensive. Um, and the studies are showing that, yes, it is slightly better at weight loss and it has apparently slightly fewer side effects, but the price tag is this much bigger. And so um, for most patients, it's not um, it's not going to be the first choice when semaglutide still works so well and is so much less expensive, especially if we're using the compounded formulations. Um, so that is why I'm going to be focusing more on semaglutide. It's just more commonly used. Um, so that is the standard dosing. What I typically see in my coaching practice is I, I really don't typically see patients having to go up to 2.4 milligrams. I really rarely see anyone going over one milligram per week. So um, just to keep that in mind, especially if it's if if the program that they are in is paired with coaching for diet and lifestyle at the same time, because um and which is, I highly recommend because this is the way you get the most out of the medication. You can also reduce side effects and you can be healing your metabolism from the inside out so that if, and when you choose to go off the medications that you're not going to just gain all your way back. So, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, we're going to talk about pricing. So some of these medications are super expensive. So the brand name Ozempic and brand name Wigovi, those are both semaglutide, the same medication. Ozempic and Wigovi are simply the brand names. Ozempic is a lower dose that's approved for diabetes. And then Wigovi is a higher dose that's approved for weight loss. Um, the brand names are both in shortage. So even if you can get a prescription from your doctor, you may go to the pharmacy and they may say, we don't have it in stock. Even if they have it in stock, it is unlikely to be covered by insurance. So you're looking at prices of at least a thousand to maybe $2,000, uh, you know, when you're getting up to Manjaro or Terzepatide a month for these medications or the brand names. So this is why many providers have been switching to the compounded form because these are more like 500 a month um, and much more uh, accessible for patients. Um, and they, and I really like the compounded medications for another reason. And that is because when patients are injecting themselves at home or if they're being injected with compounded medications in a clinical setting, you can adjust the dose and personalize it to the patient. So um, what you hear about with, you know, the biggest issues with side effects of these medications are going to be like nausea, constipation, fatigue, um, that kind of thing. These are dose dependent. Where I see the nightmare studies is when someone has just been sent home with a Ozempic, Wigovi, or Manjaro pen with no, in, no instruction on diet and lifestyle, no coaching, no support. Um, and the problem with these pre-injected pens is that they are pre-dosed and there is no way to you know, minimize the dose, take half a dose, split the dose. Um, you're stuck with, with the dose that that is the starting dose. Um, and so if that's too much for you, that's too bad. And so that ends up being really tricky. And we don't want to use more medication than we have to use. Um, it's unnecessary. Um, most patients can lose just as much weight and avoid side effects using smaller doses. So when you have your own vial of medication at home or your provider has it and they're giving it to you in clinic, they can adjust that. So, you know, a great example is, you know, I, I had um, had a few patients come and they say, oh, you know, I I'm really concerned about 
side effects on these medications. I have a really sensitive stomach or I, I tend to be very sensitive to medications. We'd say, okay, so the typical starting dose for this is 0.25 milligrams. So let's start you on 0.125 milligrams, half of the starting dose. And that usually works out beautifully um, with those patients. They don't have side effects. They may not lose weight in that first week. And that's fine because what we're doing is allowing their more sensitive bodies to adjust to the medication uh, a little bit more slowly than other patients. So that's why it's really important to have um, a good medical intake, proper medical intake for each patient and find out, you know, what their concerns are. And sometimes it's just anxiety. And that is just as important for health as anything else. If you're anxious about a medication you're about to try, um, that's not great for your health. So, and it doesn't hurt anything to start at a smaller dose. So why not try it? Um, you know, most often they come back and they are ready to go up to the regular starting dose the next week, or maybe the week after that. And then it's fine too. Um, so there are ways to adjust the dosing when you're using these compounded medications that I think are, um, make it a win-win for the patient. It also ends up being more cost-effective for the patient, especially if they're paying by the vial and having the vial sent to their homes, right? So if say each vial lasts for two months, if they find that they lose just as much weight at, on a smaller dose and can make that vial last a little bit longer, say it doesn't expire for four months, right? Um, then that's more cost-effective for that patient and we're avoiding side effects and we're still getting an improvement in metabolism and we're still getting the weight loss. So, because look, it takes time to change diet and lifestyle. And so we're really, what I'm seeing the most successful patients on these medications are not losing any more than two pounds a week. We're looking at sweet spot of like half a pound to two pounds a week. When we start to lose more than that, it usually means we're overly restricting in diet that is not in a maintainable, sustainable way. Um, and we want to take the weight off, but we want to keep it off, right? We don't want this to be like one more failed diet, right? And we also want to be healing the metabolism from the inside out. And if there's no coaching on diet and lifestyle with these medications and the patient is continuing to eat, uh, you know, a high carb, high sugar, high alcohol, high gluten diet that is keeping their triglycerides high, their blood sugar and insulin high and keeping them in that inflamed state, as soon as they go off the medications, they are going to gain all the weight back because they have not changed the diet and lifestyle necessary to maintain and their metabolism will still be broken at the end of it because insulin will still be high hsCRP an inflammatory marker that is uh, linked to heart disease risk will still be high um, and these are all measures that I recommend um, practitioners uh, monitor while patients are on these medications um, lab analysis is what I do in my coaching practice. Um, and so it's, it's part of what I do for my GLP, uh, patients as well, because what we love to do is, is see certain labs before they start and then follow up every two to three months after and see where they're going. And it's really exciting to see because you may have a patient who doesn't lose any weight at all on these medications for the first four months. But if we're tracking labs, we can see that, look, their HSCRP, their high sensitivity C-reactive protein, that extreme risk of heart disease, that's an inflammatory marker, that's coming down. What else is coming down? Their fasting insulin is coming down. And we know that high fasting insulin makes it almost impossible to lose weight, right? We want fasting insulin, Dr. Mark Hyman says, we want that optimally between a three and a five. A lot of Americans on the standard American high carb diet, that fasting insulin is in the thirties or the twenties, and that can take a year or more of 
low carb and, and semaglutide to help us be low carb to really get that in check. So when we're looking at, um, at semaglutide, it's not just about the weight loss. It's about healing cardiometabolic health so that we have longer lifespan, longer health span, and you can keep the weight off after you go off these medications if you choose to do so. And we're going to talk about that in a minute as well, because some people choose to stay on. And how does that look in maintenance? We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so if I had to create a semaglutide plan that was the healthiest, the most successful for patients, I would start with compounded medications using the minimal effective dose for that patient, whether that's 0.25 milligrams or half of that. Um, I would recommend staying on that dose until that, as long as that patient is still losing weight, that 0.5 to two pounds a week. If you're still losing that, there is no need to go up in dose because so many of these side effects, they're dose dependent. So why risk it? If you're already losing weight, if we're seeing your health um, metrics in your labs improve, let's just ride out that dose until you plateau or reach your goal weight. It's going to be less expensive for the patient, fewer risks of side effects, and we're still um, achieving the patient's goals. Um, we're pairing it with coaching for diet and lifestyle so that when the patient, if they choose to go off of it, they now know how to eat. They've thrown out the junk food. They're not eating processed food. They're not eating fast food. They're not drinking soda. Um, it gives them a fighting chance. If, they're, if they've adopted a low carb, high good fat, high protein lifestyle, I recommend about 100 total carbs a day, not net, about at least 100 grams of protein a day, at least half a gallon of water a day, preferably with some good sugar-free electrolytes because um, GLP-1 medications lower our um, hunger, as we've discussed, um, but they also tend to lower our drive for thirst. So staying hydrated on these medications is really critical to keep up your energy and to avoid headaches and things like that that happen with, um, uh, with the dehydration. So diet and lifestyle coaching, low carb, a little bit of intermittent fasting. Look, if there's in, uh, insulin resistance going on, you know, sometimes patients will do well on like one meal a day. That's not going to be really practical on GLP-1 medications like semaglutide. And I'll tell you why. Um, these are, these medications work by slowing gastric emptying. So you stay fuller longer, right? So food is going to stay in your stomach like six hours instead of just two. Um, the, the issue with this is that if you are only eating once a day, um, you're, it's going to be really hard to get your protein in that hundred grams of protein. in, um, and also it's just hard to eat all of that food at once. And so what, what I would, if I'm working with a patient who is not on a GLP one medication, we're trying to reverse insulin resistance and lose weight. We're going to go to you know, intermittent fasting. One meal a day might be fine. Maybe we're doing a 16, eight where they're eating all meals between noon and eight. Um, that could be fine. But with semaglutide, we almost need to go to smaller, more frequent meals, which Typically, we wouldn't recommend with insulin resistance because every time we eat, we're raising insulin. But what we're going to do on semaglutide, we might have to do smaller, more frequent meals because we're just getting fuller faster. And so in order to hit our protein goals, we're just going to have to do that. But we're going to keep those meals low in carbs. So we're not spiking insulin, high in good fat and high in protein and nutrient dense because nutrient density is so key on semaglutide. Because think about it, if we're losing... If our appetite is less and we're eating less, we have to make everything we're eating really count. Um, 
So that's another thing that I look at on labs when someone is on semaglutide, I track their nutrients as well. So want to make sure we don't lose um, HDL, the good cholesterol. I sometimes see that to start go down a little bit because we're eating less. So, so I try to remind them, get your good fats up, good fats and walking, raise that good cholesterol. Um, sometimes B vitamins can take a little bit of a hit, sometimes iron, you know, um, zinc, some of these things. So, you know, keep an eye on those with your practitioner or, you know, make sure you're taking a good multivitamin with methylated B complex in it with food. Do not take multivitamin on an empty stomach. You will not feel good. Um, but I always recommend um, supplementing with at least a multivitamin on these medications because you're just, you're eating less. We need to make sure we're covering our bases. You're just going to feel better too. Um, we're doing before and after labs. That's another thing that if, you know, if I had to make a perfect GLP program, I would do labs before and during and after treatment. So, and the labs that I'm seeing that um, at the very least we want to track is going to be a lipid panel, um, the high sensitivity C-reactive protein or HSCRP. And I like to see the high sensitivity one. You'll also see one that's just plain CRP. And the high sensitivity one literally is more sensitive. So I've seen both because sometimes labs will accidentally order the other one. Um, and I recently had a patient, they actually had both tested and the CRP came back normal, but the high sensitivity came back highest risk of heart disease. So I think we're getting much better information with the high sensitivity one. So try to, if you're asking for labs from your practitioner, make sure you really underline that you would like the high sensitivity CRP. Um, then I like to get a fasting insulin because we want to see, um, you know, if, if there are so many root causes of weight loss resistance, but the most common one in this country is going to be insulin resistance um, from high carb standard American diet, right? The, the more and more carbs we eat, the more insulin our pancreas has to release to pull that toxic blood sugar out of the bloodstream and stuff it into our cells. And because high blood sugar and is very inflammatory. And so over time, the pancreas is relieving, has to produce more and more insulin in response to the flood of blood sugar we're consuming, or the flood of carbs and sugar we're consuming. And eventually it has to produce so much more and more to get the same amount of blood sugar out of the bloodstream. So, so what happens is our fasting blood sugar and our A1C, which is our average blood sugar over three months, those can actually stay the same for quite a while while we're still in very insulin resistant because our pancreas is just pumping out more and more insulin to get to make our blood sugar and A1C look normal. And most doctors are not testing a fasting insulin. So they say, oh yeah, we're fine. Blood sugar is normal. A1C is normal. But if you were testing a fasting insulin, you'd see, oh, look how hard your pancreas is having to work to make that blood sugar look normal. And having a fasting insulin over a five, you want it between three and a five, makes weight loss almost impossible because your body is bathed in the fat storage hormone. That's what insulin is. Insulin is this hormone that tells our bodies to store fat rather than burn it. So if you have a high fasting insulin and you can't lose weight to save your life, of course, that is not your fault. That is exactly what happens when you have a high level of fasting insulin in the body, telling your body to hang on to every fat cell and not to burn it. So, um, and it can take a long time to get that fasting insulin down, depending on how high it is to start. The, that fasting blood sugar will come down first. The A1C will come down next. It takes about three months for the A1C to come down. And then depending on how high your fasting insulin is to start, you know, if it's in the 30s, it could take a year or more of low carb um, 
And then semaglutide, of course, helps us lower carbs. So that's a really helpful adjunct therapy to um, reversing insulin resistance. But it does, it comes down, it reverses. And once that fasting insulin is below a six, that is when we see the most success in coming off of these medications if the patient chooses to do that. Um, born after labs, let's see. Talked about microdosing. So these medications, they're getting, they're in the news for the incredible weight loss results they have, that we're seeing with them. But what I am most interested in because lab analysis and cognitive function and prevention of Alzheimer's disease is my primary interest. What I'm seeing that is super exciting is the 20% reduction in heart disease risk on these medications. They improve heart failure. They have even found that there is no increased risk of thyroid cancer on these medications when compared to insulin. In fact, there may be less thyroid cancer risk with patients on semaglutide versus insulin. That is a new study that was just out that was just posted. Um, and I think that is such great news. Um, I'm seeing triglycerides, lipid panels normalize that HSCRP, that inflammatory marker that is highly correlated to heart disease and stroke risk. I'm seeing that drop like a rock in three to six months, um, fasting insulin dropping. So these, all these metrics of, you know, health span and lifespan um, are all improving, whether the patient is losing weight or not, which is just amazing because often weight loss doesn't even start until the metabolism starts to heal. And, you know, depending on the, the level of damage done underneath, but if you can, if you're tracking labs, that is something you can discuss with the patient and is so motivating because some patients that, oh, this is just something else I tried. I've been on it four months. It's not working. I never mind. I'm going back to eating pizza and donuts, right? But if you can show them their metabolism is healing in the background by taking these before and after labs, giving them some hope and saying, okay, let's stay on this a little bit longer and see if you start to lose weight finally, because you're close, your fasting insulin is almost below a six. Let's give it another few months and see. And look, you know, it, this is, should be shared decision-making between the patient and the provider. Um, but that's great information because so many of these patients, they obviously don't want to die an early death of, of cardiovascular disease or stroke um, or dementia. And so, um, so tracking these just gives so much additional um, information and motivation um, for patients because look, you know, it's not all about looks for so many people. It's about how do I feel and how am I able to present in the world? How, how much energy do I have? Um, and when you're not in good metabolic health, it affects all of that. Um, most common side effects. So are going to be nausea and constipation. So nausea, but again, these are dose dependent. So if, if someone comes and says, Oh, you know, I'm really, I took my first dose and I'm feeling a little nauseated. What I will typically recommend, um, or I will see providers recommend, um, is that they wait to inject their next dose 
until they're feeling better. So if that's seven days, usually these are injected every seven days. So if by the next, by the seven, next seven days, they're, they're feeling okay. And they feel like injecting, they can go ahead and inject. If it, you know, if they're still feeling queasy for some reason at seven days, don't inject again, wait till 10 days, wait till 14 days. That's fine. The other thing that I've seen recommended is the next time you inject, inject half of the dose that you first injected, because maybe you're one of the people who's more sensitive, right? Um, you can also split your dose. So with the compounded medications, uh, what some patients are doing is ordering extra syringes and needles on Amazon, because only a certain amount comes with your compounded medication. Um, and they will split the dose. So, you know, say they're doing 0.25 milligrams a week. They'll say, you know what? I just do better if I do 0.125 milligrams on Monday and on Thursday, I do the other half, the 0.125 milligrams. And they inject in different spots. Usually this isn't, these are injected in the abdomen, but you can also inject on the outer thigh. Um, in fact, that is one of the hacks for reducing side effects. Um, if, if someone is feeling like they're, they are experiencing some GI side effects, they can try injecting on the outer thigh and see if that helps. But splitting doses is another way to avoid side effects. Um, we're looking at for constipation, magnesium citrate is amazing for, uh, helping with constipation, taking that at night, um, you can take, you know, start with one to two. Um, you can go up from there, adding one per night with a full glass of water. You know, I always say don't, I take a lot of magnesium citrate every night because I have hypothyroidism that leads to constipation. So I probably take more than most people, um, but you want to make sure that you don't give yourself a blowout. So a start low, go slow. Um, work up to it, but um, magnesium citrate is very well absorbed. And a lot of us are magnesium deficient. So I like it for that reason, um, but it also helps with constipation. So there's another magnesium that you'll see in most of the cheaper grocery store supplements called magnesium oxide. It will give you diarrhea, but it is not well absorbed. So I don't love that one. So I try to stay away from that one. It's really just not worth it, even if it's cheaper. Um, another great source of magnesium is magnesium glycinate. That's a great one for just overall like sleep and, you know, heart health and uh, bones and mood and all of that. Um, but it does not affect constipation one way or the other. Um, magnesium L3 and 8 is also a wonderful um, form of magnesium. It's also called neuromag or brain magnesium. It's great. I take it at night. It helps with sleep and mood and cognition. So it's another one that you can think about adding. Um, other possible side effects and ways to avoid side effects. So the most common, besides being dose dependent, right? Taking too, too high of a dose for you. Um, the main things that I see causing side effects are gonna be alcohol, especially sugary alcohol. That one is just a across the board almost, like increased risk in nausea, gluten. I've seen that over and over again. Patients say, you know what? I had a gluten-free pizza. I was fine. I had a bite of bread from the bread basket at a restaurant and I was in the bathroom feeling so sick. Um, and look, I love avoiding gluten. I'm a big fan of that anyway, um, because it's anti-inflammatory. It's reducing risk of autoimmune disease. But you think about what are the sources of gluten? That's wheat, that's carbs, that's pancakes, waffles, chips, crackers, pancakes, you know, cookies, cake, things that we don't need to be eating anyway, if we're trying to lose weight or we're trying to reverse insulin resistance, lower inflammation in the body. And we're not, um, by getting rid of gluten, we're not missing out on any critical nutrients. We are um, 
making room for a more nutrient dense diet, in fact. So, um, so I love that. Um, so that's one I always throw out there because it's something that so many patients have told me, um, portions. So like I said, you're on these medications, you're going to be, um, digestion is slowed. So you're going to have food in your stomach a little bit longer. So if you go back to eating the same portions that you did before, that food is just going to feel like it's kind of coming up. So the recommendations to move to a salad plate and have smaller meals, a little more frequently, but high good fat, high protein, high nutrient density, low carb, um, and then not eating two to three hours before bedtime. Because again, if that food is still sitting in your stomach and you lay down, it could give you some, some feeling of reflux. So, um, and that cannot feel great. Um, we talked about lowering the dose, splitting the dose, um, waiting longer than seven days to inject your next dose along those lines. So you can wait, you know, you can go 10 days with your next shot, even two weeks. If you take a break longer than four weeks from the medication, it's essentially out of your system by that time. So if you've been on a higher dose and you take a break for a month, you, you went out of the country, you just decided to take a break and see how you could maintain with a low carb diet off of it. And now you want to try it again. You need to start back at your original starting dose or you will make yourself sick. So always talk to your doctor about that. They will tell you the same thing. Um, or should. And so, yeah, if you had gotten up to, you know, a one milligram weekly dose and you take a month off, you do not go back to that one milligram weekly dose. We start back at 0.25. So, um, and that is, that is for your safety and comfort. And often, and you look, you, these, your body will have resensitized to it. You will likely have the same weight loss results at the lower dose. So that can be sort of a benefit as well. Um, we talked about hydrating with electrolytes that can help with some of the fatigue. And if there are headaches involved, um, talked about the magnesium citrate designs for health brand is a good magnesium citrate brand. Um, mitochondrial support by designs for health is also a great supplement to add for energy multivitamin with methylated B. You're going to take these supplements with food if you can. And then another great one that I have seen is um, supplementing with a betaine HCL with pepsin and a digestive enzyme with meals. You always take these after your first few bites of each food, of food. Uh, but this is going to help you um, digest the food in your stomach better and absorb the nutrients better. And it's also it boosts your own stomach acid a little bit. So to help digestion, um, some people will experience reflux on these medications, but what it's not reflux can be is different from excess stomach acid. A lot of people confuse the two. So when, as we get older, if our thyroid function is suboptimal, or if we're taking semaglutide, all of these things can lower stomach acid, not raise it. And so when we're taking semaglutide, and if we're having a feeling of reflux, it may be because we've eaten too much too quickly or we've laid down too fast. And so the food is coming up, but it's not, it's not that we have too much acid. Often it's because we don't have enough stomach acid to go ahead and digest, get that food, absorb the nutrients and get it through our body. Stomach acid is actually critical to our immune systems. It's going to keep out um, bad bacteria, viruses, parasites. So, you know, E. coli, SIBO, C. diff, um, H. pylori. 
a lot of these issues um, helps keep the bad bacteria away and allow the good bacteria to thrive and allows your body to digest and absorb the nutrients, especially protein in the food. And that is so critical to maintaining muscle mass on semaglutide. Um, and anytime you're losing weight, whether it's with semaglutide or not. So I love um, betaine HDL with pepsin, digestive enzymes, standard process makes one that has both included in it called Zypan. Um, and again, you could just take that with after the first few bites of each meal. And I found that incredibly helpful when my stomach acid was low before I was treated for hypothyroidism and had low stomach acid. Every time I ate, I would just bloat out to here. And as soon as I started replacing my stomach acid and asking, asking and replacing the digestive enzymes, um, it was the bloating was immediately gone. And not only that, I had several nutrient deficiencies at the same time because I wasn't absorbing the nutrients in my food or all the supplements I was taking because my stomach acid was low because my thyroid function was low. Um, and as soon as I started replacing my stomach acid, all of a sudden my vitamin D went up, my iron went up, my protein went up. So all of these things, I started actually absorbing my B vitamins, um, so that helped my health in a lot of different ways. So I love that, um, that supplement as well. Um, we talked about riding out the same dose until you plateau, reach your goal. And there's no need to, you know, this is, it, 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 a lot of people come to this medication, um, you know, having had the experience in conventional medicine where you go and you have a medication like an antibiotic where you have to take it on the same exact dose on a schedule, or it could be ineffective. Oh, if you miss a dose, you have to double the dose. That is not the case with semaglutide. It is not how I am seeing providers use it successfully. Um, if you are feeling sick, we don't, you can wait to take your next dose. That is fine. Um, sometimes it just takes a month or two for the body to get used to the medication. So these side effects that we do see typically wane after the first month or maybe two of the medication as your body gets used to them. And that's really good news. Um, we talked about changing the injection site, abdomen to the outer thigh. Um, yeah, you know, I have seen some practitioners prescribe anti-nausea medications like um, Zofran for, um, for patients who experience nausea on these medications and look, you know, the, they can be life-changing if you are feeling really, really sick and you cannot get out of bed and you have to work. Um, I, that's great. And I applaud those providers for providing those, um, those medications to their patients. Um, what we have found though, is that most of the time we can avoid having to even prescribe those by making sure we're starting at a very low dose and staying on a low dose and not raising it unless we have to by avoiding alcohol, avoiding gluten. Um, and then we have found that anti-nausea medications increase fatigue. Um, and this is, you know, dram over-the-counter Dramamine or Zofran, and they also seem to stop weight loss. So, you know, look, if you're vomiting profusely and you, who cares if you're losing weight, right? <laughs> you just want to feel better. So look, we just, I get that. And so let's get the medication and let's feel better and worry about weight loss later. Um, but those are, that's pretty rare. So, um, a lot of times there's just the, the most common thing that I hear from patients with the nausea is that it's like a mild morning sickness and then it kind of goes away. And so if patients are sort of popping Zofran or Dramamine for, for that, when they could have just kind of ridden it out, um, Sometimes they say, oh, you know what? Yeah, if, if the weight loss is going to stop and if I'm going to feel really tired on the anti-nausea medications, I'd rather just lower my dose or wait 10 days to inject next time. Um, so we kind of just offer options. And I think that's 
that's where you get the best success, right? Where people feel listened to and taken care of um, and that we have options. And so that's anti-nausea medications. Um, again, side effects usually go away within the first couple months. They might, you might hit them again if you decide to go up in dose. But um, the way that I've seen to avoid that, again, is by going up slowly in dose, right? So a typical Ozempic pen is prescribed 0.25 milligrams for four weeks. Then at five weeks, you're doubling it. So on a compounded medication, you could say, all right, we're going to do 0.25 for the first four weeks, or maybe you're doing 0.125 for the first two weeks. Then the next two weeks, you're doing 0.25. Then instead of doubling the dose, maybe you're going to 0.3 milligrams, maybe 0.35, right? So you can sort of play with that and up it little by little. And so work with your provider. Um, a, a lot of, of practitioners are doing it this way now. Um, and if you bring it up, if they haven't heard of it being done this way, I'm sure they will be open to it because look, anything that helps you respond better and lowers your risks of complications and side effects while also helping you to meet your weight loss and health goals, they are going to want to, to do. And so we're all learning about this, these medications together. Um, and uh, and there are so many ways to do them really well. So best time of day to inject, this really is up to you or best week time, day of the week to inject. So um, there are, you know, patients who are, look, I travel for work and I'm doing presentations all week. It, you know, I, I think I'm going to take my first shot on a Friday where I, so I can find out how I react over the weekend where I'm not, ha not having to make a presentation. Some patients are like, you know what, I am going to start on a Monday when my kids are in school. So I have the, the school week while they're in school to see how I react. Whereas I have lots of weekend social plans where I, if, if I tend to feel sick or am, if I'm going to have side effects, I don't want to avoid that, or I'm about to travel. So you can adjust your, your day that way. Um, time of day, I would say most patients are doing it right before bed. Um, so they sort of maybe sleep through any issues that they have. Um, but again, that can be done any time of day. The you can experiment with it and see what time of day works best for you. Um, okay. I had to write all this down on you guys. This was a lot of information and I wanted to make sure we got through it all. And I'm sure I'm still going to miss some things. So um, common questions that I get, how much weight will I lose? And what if I'm not losing or I have plateaued? So this is again, where I think and I've mentioned this before, how much weight will I lose? We talked about what the averages are, right? 33% will lose 20% or more of their body weight. Um, but if it's me helping with the, you know, with the coaching on this, I'm really not looking to see any more than two pounds of weight loss a week. And that is because in my experience with this medication, when we lose more than that per week, it tends not to be sustainable. Um, we also see more skin sagging, more of the pancake butt. We don't have enough time to, to be changing the diet and lifestyle at the same time, adding in this weight bearing exercise, adding, making sure we're getting adequate protein to maintain the muscle mass. Um, it just, it just seems to work better. And it's, it's the, seems to be the safest and most effective way. So half a pound to two pounds a week is, would be my ideal sweet spot. Um, 
And, you know, look, there's, you know, if you have a BMI over 40 and it's, that's, you're, you're dealing with class three obesity, you know, and you're on these medications, look, you may lose more in, especially in the beginning and you're losing, you're losing a lot of water weight when lowering carbs and that can happen. Um, but overall, for most of the patients that I'm seeing who are more in the, in the overweight or, you know, higher end of normal range, that slower, slower weight loss just seems to be the sweet spot. Um, if you plateau on your current dose, talk to your doctor about, there are many things you can do. You can start raising your dose by a little bit every week until you break through your plateau. Um, and of course you wanna do that with your doctor in consultation with them, whoever's prescribing it. Um, but what I do see, and this is the benefit you guys of doing before and after labs, and especially the before labs, um, most co my coaching clients come to me first for labs. So I'm doing an in-depth lab analysis on them before they've even started any of these medications. So if weight loss is an issue for them, I'm, I get to identify what are the root causes, and it's usually more than one, of their particular weight loss resistance, right? So for most, it is insulin resistance. 93% of Americans are insulin resistant, um, overweight or obese, um, or metabolically unhealthy. So that is, you know, one of the usual suspects. But when we're doing before and after labs, occasionally someone will come in and they don't have insulin resistance. Their fasting insulin is already between a three and a five. Their fasting blood sugars below hundred or optimally we want it 70 to 85. Their A1C is below a five. Um, we're not seeing the high HSCRP, their lipids are normal. So what do we do then? They're still overweight. They're having weight loss resistance. They're not sure. Okay. What is their underlying cause then? Right. So then they work with me or their practitioner. Um, often they'll work with me to find out what labs to ask their doctor for. So it's going to be, you know, we need a full thyroid workup. So, um, TSH, but also free T3, free T4, reverse T3 and TPO and TG antibodies for Hashimoto's to get a full idea of what's going on with the thyroid. We want to test hormones, right? For a young woman, is there PCOS going on? Um, well, there wouldn't be if there's not insulin resistance typically, but you know, or do we have some sort of imbalance in, in hormones like high or low testosterone, estrogen dominance, uh, is, is she ovulating? Are we in perimenopause, right? Um, and that can be a time of, you know, low progesterone, high or low testosterone um, and high and fluctuating estrogen. What can we do about that? Can we start to microdose some hormone replacement in perimenopause? And in menopause, you know, what can we do for um, to replace those hormones to restore insulin sensitivity and um, and help with the, especially that menopausal belly, right? That happens with um, so that you know hormonal imbalance can be huge for weight loss resistance, um, stress, cortisol chronic stress because cortisol causes the liver to create glucose, literally gluconeogenesis, create new glucose out of nothing, out of whatever it has in the body. And that causes chronically elevated blood sugar and insulin, even in a fasted state. So that can cause, um, high difficulty losing weight, uh, lack of sleep, certain medications, you guys, like if you've ever taken a steroid pack for an injury or for allergies, you probably gained 10 pounds overnight and had ravenously hungry. Right. Um, and then wonder why and then it went away when you were off the medications, steroids will do that. Um, hormonal birth control will do it. Um, SSRIs can cause weight gain, um, antidepressants, um, travel changes and disruptions to circadian rhythm can cause plateaus or random weight gain, right? Water retention. 
illness or surgery, same thing. So um, alcohol, one alcoholic drink stops fat burning for 12 to 36 hours. So it's bad news, but, um, but it's the facts. And so if someone is really stuck, you know, I, I want to put it all out there. Like what, what could it be, you know, because only, you know, what you, what could be affecting you, um, you know, oh yeah, I do shift work or I work at night. That is probably affecting my weight loss. Right. Um, counting net carbs instead of total carbs. So, you know, processed food companies love to greenwash their products by selling us, oh, it's only has two net carbs and you're looking at it as 40 total carbs, right? Um, and our bodies are, for the most part, they're registering total carbs, especially if it is a food that is a processed packaged food. You know, look, if you want to do net carbs for a food that has grown in the ground, like a vegetable, fine. But you should otherwise use total carbs when tracking carbs. And we're looking at about aiming for about 100 total carbs a day. And if you're thinking about that, um, like if you were doing a keto diet, which is this is not a keto diet at all, um, keto would require 20 to 50 total carbs a day. So this is more of a like a low carb. This is the same uh, way of eating that uh, my doctor had me do when I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So um, it took some getting used to, and I um, had to weigh and measure and track my food for a while to sort of learn where all the carbs were coming from. Um, I was way overeating on grapes and almonds. And that was it. Like I wasn't eating grains. I wasn't drinking alcohol, but that was enough to make me diabetic. So that was, that was eye opening. I highly recommend getting a food scale and at least taking two weeks to weigh, measure and track your food in grams um, and track it in like my fitness pal to just see how many grams of carbs total you're eating a day. Forget about calories, just how many carbs, because once you start to realize how many we're really eating a day. It's very eye-opening and you don't have to do it forever. It's just education um, and raising your awareness and figuring out what your carb tolerance is. And a great thing to pair the food tracking with is blood sugar measurement. You can do that with an over-the-counter finger prick um, glucose monitor. I like the Keto Mojo because you can, um, they sell strips for testing your blood sugar, but also your ketones. So you can see when your body has, become more metabolically flexible and can make ketones and burn fat for fuel as well as blood sugar. So that's, that is a goal. Um, you, you'll feel it in your body when that happens because you'll stop having afternoon crashes because when you run low on glucose, your body just says, oh yeah, we have that other storage tank of fat. Well, we go to that and it just switches. And so uh, I think that's the biggest thing that I noticed um, you know, about a month into lowering my carbs that my body finally started to make ketones. And so I have not had an afternoon crash since then, since I've been eating this way and it's been almost 10 years now and it's really life-changing. Um, hidden sugars. Okay. Learning how to read nutrition labels. I do this a lot with coach, uh, in my, um, coaching sessions with clients. So they, they'll send me nutrition labels all the time. And I just highly encourage it. Uh, you know, whether you're working with me or you find another coach to help you, it is so important because there are so many secret ways that food companies add sugar to products. And there are so many different names for sugar um, and they do this on purpose. So there is a, um, if you just go Google hidden sources of sugar, you can find lists everywhere. Um, usually they end in OSE, but it could be, you know, sugar syrups. Um, but um 
they like to separate out the different kinds of sugar so they don't have to list sugar as the first ingredient, as basically the main ingredient in the food. So if they split them all up, they can say, oh, well, it's, you know, wheat is the first ingredient, but then, you know, uh, high fructose corn syrup is the second and third is, you know, um, rice syrup and some other syrup. Um, so they split it all up. So they don't, otherwise, if they just said sugar, it would obviously be the first ingredient because it would be the most, that's what's it's mostly in the product. Um, so hidden sugars are huge um, because anytime we're eating sugar, we're raising insulin and stopping fat burning. So um, sugar substitutes, you guys. So um, certain sugar substitutes can also um, stop fat burning. And this is so interesting. So maltodextrin, sucralose, or Splenda, those can raise insulin higher than table sugar. So you want to avoid those ingredients if you're trying to lose weight. I've had patients um, who were on semaglutide who um, were plateaued and we could not figure out why. And he was sending me, I said, okay, for the next week, just send me pictures of what you're eating. And so he was sending me pictures and it all looked good. You know, it was like salads and it was steak and it was, you know, fish, um, broccoli and all these things. But then he started, he's like, oh, and then I'm having these, um, energy drinks every morning. He sent me a picture of the back of it. Sure enough, it had sucralose in it. Well, how many of these was he having a day? Well, like six. So sucralose is raising his insulin higher than blood sugar. He took those out found a new caffeine source and he lost about seven pounds in a week. And that's huge, right? And that was just one little trick. So there are lots of ways to hack plateaus um, that you, that can include raising your dose, but you may not have to, right? Or you may only have to raise your dose a little bit, um, but it can be a combination of things. But I highly recommend working with a provider who can also, who is also well-versed in proper thyroid testing and treatment and well-versed in proper hormone testing and bioidentical hormone treatment, because that is, it's hard to find. Um, if you need help, I've got connections, various um, practices, and they're amazing. I basically just take the recommendations from my coaching clients and say, wait, you had a good experience there. You were treated well, you were listened to, you're feeling better. You're going on my list. So that's one of the things that I do for my coaching clients is help connect them to good providers. Um, so that's plateaus. Um, we talked about the way of eating I recommend. Um, let's see. So what there are other, these are just kind of miscellaneous questions when it comes to GLP-1. So maintenance dosing after you have reached your goal. So this is such a great question. Like, you know, wait, do I have to be on this forever? Um, what if I reach my goal and I feel so good on this medication? My inflammatory markers are down. I've reversed my insulin resistance. My risk of heart disease is way down. I don't want to go off these medications. Can I stay on, but I don't want to lose any more weight is there a way to stay on these medicate this medication as a at a lower dose, maybe injected less frequently to maintain my results and to maintain my health results, my you know lower risk of heart disease and all that? And the answer is yes. I see that all the time, um, especially you know you you want to find a provider who is really experienced with these medications. Um, but yes, absolutely. Um, and then that becomes a much 
easier proposition economically for patients, right? So again, if you're going through a vial every four months instead of every month or two, that becomes much more affordable. Um, and, and look, for most patients, they're saying, yes, okay, these medications are often expensive, but you know what else is expensive? You know, di long-term diabetes care, um, dialysis, foot amputation due to diabetes, dying of a heart attack early and losing, you know, all that time with my family and friends, long-term care and nursing home and memory care because I got dementia because I had high blood sugar, which if you have diabetes, it doubles your risk of dementia. So there are a lot of ways to look at these medications. Um, the, the other thing that we're seeing, look, is um, yes, these medications can be expensive, but we're seeing patients no longer need blood pressure medications. They no longer need statins. They no longer need insulin. Some of some patients, and I've seen this, and of course, you know, I, I don't, I should go in PubMed and see if there's anything clinically, but I've seen it in, in practice. Several patients with ADHD do not want to miss their shots because they don't have to take their Adderall if they take their semaglutide because it has such an anti-inflammatory effect on their brain. Um, we say we're seeing like mood issues decrease because in, you know, depression, anxiety is you've often may have seen it referred to as inflammation in the brain. So when we bring down systemic inflammation, it makes some sense that mood would, we would feel better. Not only that, semaglutide and the GLP-1 medications, what they do is they stabilize blood sugar. So, um, I read an article recently, I was trying to see, read up on the appropriateness of semaglutide and other GLPs for elderly populations. And it turns out they're actually one of the first choices for that population because they don't cause blood sugar to plummet. They simply stabilize it. So we're not having these huge swings. Then that is characteristic of prediabetes and diabetes. It's large swings up and down, which can make you feel terrible, impact your mood in negative ways, impact your cognition in negative ways and your energy and and obviously negative ways. So it helps keep the blood sugar between 70 and 120, which is where Dr. Mark Hyman says is optimal even after you've eaten. Um, if you have a continuous glucose monitor, you can measure that yourself. Those are prescription. You can ask your doctor for them, or you can go to Levels Health or NutriSense or one of these online. Um, they have doctors that will prescribe them and send it to you. But the cheapest way to do it is to have your doctor prescribe it and get it at like Costco and get a good RX card. It should be like 68 bucks a month. Um, and if you're, if you're my coaching client, I can teach you how to use it, or you can just watch my Instagram video on how to use it too. Maintenance dosing. So yes, you can continue the medication after you've reached your goal. And I see this all the time. I just saw a, a, a former patient this, this weekend, and she's doing monthly maintenance dosing at a very low dose. And she's doing fantastic. She's not losing any more weight. She's maintaining her health is amazing. Um, and that's, that's kind of what we're looking at. I've seen other people do maintenance dosing that kind of varies a little bit, right? So around this time of year, so from kind of Halloween to New Year's, they might dose every two weeks um, because they're just surrounded by junk food and Halloween candy and, you know, pie, Thanksgiving pies and, you know, Christmas candy. Um, and it's just a lot. And, the, and um, we haven't even discussed this, but GLP-1 medications have also been shown to reduce cravings for alcohol. Um, and that is incredibly helpful for people who have feel like they've been drinking too much, um, especially over quarantine. Um, this doesn't happen with everyone, but almost everyone has some sort of reduced intake of alcohol. And there are some who just stop drinking altogether. They just don't want it. It's not an effort that is involved. Take a little sip of water here. All of you drink some water. Let's stay hydrated. Mm. Um, so that's an amazing 
side effect. And so you can go to PubMed and you can read up on um, semaglutide and GLP-1 medications, um, the effect on, there is, seems to be some sort of effect on the addiction centers of the brain. Um, dopamine, there's a gut-brain connection going on um, that really, that we're just starting to learn about. And so that is super exciting. So back to maintenance. So some patients, maybe they have been on monthly dosing, but from October to January, they're going to every two weeks because they just, look, it's just too hard. Um, this is this time of year. It's, you know, there's stress eating, holidays, family, um, a lot more exposure to junk food. We don't have as much control over the food as we're eating. So it seems to kind of help them stay on track. Then they go back to the monthly after the holidays. And I think that's, you know, if you and your provider have worked that out, that seems to work really well. Um, and it helps them, you know, drink less during the holidays. Um, and a lot of patients I find are trying to drink less. Look, nobody wants to be a binge drinker. Um, but you know, a lot of us got into the habit of drinking more than we wanted to, especially during quarantine when we were home alone. And then that habit kind of stuck. And so this has been a really nice unexpected benefit um, that patients have reported without even knowing that they were going to experience it. They just come back and say, you know, I used to drink a bottle of wine every night and now I am maybe having half a glass. And I just didn't even realize that that was going to be a thing. And I'm really happy about it. I can you know, drive myself home from a party. I can put my kid to bed. This is um, this is a win, win, win. Um, and look, like I said about alcohol, even one drink is going to stop that burning for 12 to 36 hours. So to the extent that you can drink less, um, it's going to lower your carbs. It's going to boost your weight loss results and overall health as well. So, um, so maintenance dosing. Yes, we can do a low dose. You know, it could be the 0.25, the starting dose, it might be 0.5 for some. Those are the two kind of main maintenance doses I tend to see. And I tend to see them every two to four weeks. So, um, and these, these medications are approved for long-term use. You know, they've been used for since 2005 and have some really good safety data. Um, but like I said, look, is when we're using minimal effective dose along with coaching and diet and lifestyle, um, I really think we we get into minimizing any potential issues even more, um, and just maximizing the health benefits of these of these medications. Um, itching, swelling, redness at the injection site. So this can be super common and is a very expected. It is not unusual. Um, if patients are injecting at home, they may just not have experience injecting at home and wonder what's, why is this red or swollen or it's itchy? Um, it's super common. It's fine. It's nothing to be worried about. And there are several hacks that my uh, patients have shared with me and kind of on social media to, um, to avoid this issue. So if you are someone who is injecting these medications at home and you're experiencing this, I will share some of these with you right now. So first of all, of course, you're gonna to wanna to wash your hands thoroughly before you get out your supplies, your you know your vial, your, um, your syringe, your needles, your alcohol and your um, cotton pads. Um, wash your hands thoroughly. Then you're going to take your alcohol swab and thoroughly wipe down the injection site. And what you can also do is take the alcohol swab and wipe down the top of the vial itself. So that keeps it from getting contaminated. And then I had one patient say that what she does is that she also takes an alcohol swab and wipes down the actual needle that she's going to use to inject, like takes the top off and wipes down that needle because she is convinced there is something on the needle 
that comes with it, whether it's something in the metal or something in the manufacturing that she is having some sort of reaction to. But she said, once she started alcohol swabbing the actual needle, and don't touch it to anything but that alcohol swab. We don't want to um, contaminate that needle in any way, but her, this is her patient experience that that really helped to um, make the injection less um, reactive for her. Um, then once you, you're gonna draw up the medication, however much your dose is, you're gonna inject it. And then you're going to alcohol swab the area again after you have injected it. Then of course, you're gonna put the needle and the syringe into a sharps box, or if you don't have a sharps box, get you know a, a hard plastic laundry detergent bottle is a great alternative because we don't want putting to be putting needles in straight into our garbage for our um, sanitation workers to get poked with. So having them in a hard plastic container is how we want to get rid of those if you don't have a sharps box. Um, wash your hands again after handling everything and then put all your supplies back together once your hands are washed again. Um, you do not want to reuse your needles. So I know patients will do that. And I've heard of patients doing that and saying they're fine. I never recommend reusing needles. Your doctor is never going to recommend <laughs> reusing needles. First of all, they get, um, they get blunt and that can hurt more. So why do that? But it does raise the risk of infection or issues and, and reactions. So don't do that. You can also, we also always recommend rotating your injection site. So if you're doing it in the abdomen, you know, say you did it on the right side, maybe we're going to rotate it to the left, below the belly button, above the belly button, right all the way around, right? You can also try injecting on the outer thigh instead of the abdomen. If you feel like you're getting more reactivity um, in the abdomen, you can also, if you have a friend who will do it, you can also inject in this sort of uh, subcutaneous tissue in the back of the arm. Um, so, and there are videos on how to do subcutaneous injections on, um, on YouTube that you can find that that will show you exactly how to do that. So that's how to avoid um, issues with the injection site. And let's see, taking a break to resensitize yourself to the medication. So some people they'll say, you know what, like I've been on this medication for four months and I haven't lost any weight on a, mal on a certain dose. I think I'm gonna take a break and see if I can resensitize myself to it and then start it up again. And that is a valid choice. Um, that tends to work best when we're tracking your labs and your metabolism is healed in the background. And then we kind of see, okay, let's take the training wheels off, take a break for a month, four to six weeks and see how well you're able to maintain on the low carb, high, good fat, high protein, um, you know, gluten-free kind of way of eating and see how you do. When the taking a break doesn't tend to work as well is when the metabolism still is not healed and we still have high fasting insulin and a lot of inflammation going on. So um, that's a really great question. If you're, and then when you restart after, and I think I've said this before, restarting after a break of uh, over four weeks, you are starting back at the original starting dose of 0.25 milligrams. Or if you started at 0.125 milligrams, you would start back at that starting dose. Um, Menstrual cycles on semaglutide. Um, they there have been some reports of changes to menstrual cycles on this medication. What I've noticed with most of my patients, and this could be just you know people self-selecting who are working with me. I have several patients who are younger who have PCOS and are taking semaglutide to restore fertility to because PCOS is a um, 
causes infertility, but its root cause is insulin resistance. Um, and that causes high testosterone, infertility, lack of ovulation. Um, and so getting the insulin resistance fixed using semaglutide often changes their menstrual cycles in a way that is positive. They start ovulating again, they're able to get pregnant. Um, the insulin resistance reverses itself. Um, and that is a positive thing. Um, but there have been reports of, you know, my period came early, my period came late, uh, my period was heavier or not. And there could be a lot of reasons for this. Um, I always, you know, e each patient is going to be individual. So if it's someone who is over the age of 35, um, you know, are they on birth control? Are they not? Have they, um, are they, you know, in their forties and maybe starting to deal with symptoms of perimenopause at the same time. Um, but whenever you change or improve your blood sugar, it does have an impact on your hormones and usually to, a, to a positive in a positive way, especially if you are not losing weight too quickly. This is another reason I highly recommend sticking with the 0.5 to two pounds a week, no more than that, because as women, you know, look, we have babies. Our bodies are extremely sensitive to any perceived stress on the body. So if we're just hammering our bodies with high doses of semaglutide and not changing the way that we're eating and still eating garbage, but we're losing weight. Yeah. Like our periods, we might stop having our periods because our bodies might freak out if, if we're losing seven pounds in a week and our nutrition has gone down because we're not eating what we need to be eating. Um, uh, yeah, that, that can happen. Um, but I don't usually see that when we're using the minimal effective dose, the patient is optimized in, um, what they're eating and their nutrient density and giving their body what they need. And we're not losing too much weight too fast. That's, we don't want to freak the body out. So always talk to your doctor if you have any issues with menstrual cycle changes on these medications, but typically it's a one-off thing that happens um, and then it tends to normalize. Um, but always talk to your doctor um, about that. And, and it could just be a coincidence, right? You could just be entering perimenopause, menopause, and things could be changing anyway. And then you could talk to your doctor about that. And I love hormone replacement and I love thyroid hormone replacement. Those are other issues we're gonna talk about in future episodes, um, because I am obsessed with those as well. Um, we talked about semaglutide versus trisepatide. I love trisepatide. I have a, a few patients who are on it and love it. Um, it's just so, so, so expensive. I mean, some clinics are charging $500 a shot for it. So, um, it's just really not, and it's not that much more effective. Um, so, but look, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will come down and, um, I, I there's, there is a, there are a couple places where I'm seeing it come down a little bit. So, you know, get in touch if that's something that you feel like you're, you need, and I'll try to connect you. Um, hair loss. Okay. This is another one that we got. And I was just getting into kind of random things. So again, hair loss, dose dependent. This is again, where I like minimal effective dose and not losing too much weight too fast. Right. Especially with women. I feel like our bodies are just exquisite, exquisitely sensitive to perceived stress, whether it's actual stress or not. Or we're like thrilled that we've lost seven pounds finally in a week, but our bodies were like freaking out. So if we can keep that to a minimum and we're losing slowly and steadily, we're maximizing our nutrition. So nutrient density, slow, steady weight loss, 
Um, of course, B vitamins, right? Methylated B complex, multivitamin with methylated Bs. That's great, um, including biotin. Um, as an aside, if you're getting your thyroid checked, do not take any supplements containing biotin within three or four days because it will mess with your thyroid labs and they will be inaccurate. Um, iron, low iron can cause hair loss. So ask your doctor to do a full iron panel. That's going to be include your CBC, your uh, hemoglobin, hematocrit, but it's also going to be your serum iron, your percent sat, your TIBC and your UIBC and your ferritin. Okay. You want all of those together to find out if you're iron deficient because it's tricky with iron. You don't want to supplement unless we know you're low because you can overdose on iron. So tests don't guess on that one. Nutrafol is a great supplement for hair. Marine uh, algae is the active ingredients that's been studied that you can go read up on on PubMed. Um, and then depending on where you are, you know, it could be, you know, again, work with your doctor. It could be iodine, selenium, zinc. Um, and then protein, again, there's, I would highly recommend finding a good protein powder that you like. I've been experimenting with ones right at home because I'm trying to get an, my protein up. Um, whey protein made me so gassy. It just, I was not presentable in public. So um, same with uh, sugar alcohols, like erythritol, xylitol, those are just blowing me up. So I found one, my internist, former internist um, recommended, it's called Paleo Pro. I don't make any money off of these again. This is just one that I just, I've tried it uh, at a friend's house and I liked it and it did not give me gas. I can go to parties later on and not be embarrassed. And it's made from beef protein isolate and egg whites. So if you're sensitive to eggs, that might be not it, it for you. But if you do have issues with the whey protein causing gas, go look for something that is based in beef protein isolate. Apparently that's a lot better on the GI system. And I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, minoxidil foam, 5%. I use that on my hair. Um, the liquid has an ingredient in it that can cause scalp irritation. That's why I use the foam. Um, even though the liquid is a little less expensive, it's not worth the scalp irritation. Um, other reasons for hair loss can be low fat, low or suboptimal thyroid function. So I recommend working with a provider who really knows what they're doing and can help you with that as well. Um, in addition to the semaglutide sex hormones, um, this could be perimenopause, menopause, men and andropause. Um, it could be PCOS if in, you know, younger women, um, issues with being on birth control and other, uh, other medications. So Mirena IUD, um, birth control pill, um, those can cause hair loss. Insulin resistance itself can cause inflammation and lead to hair loss. Um, autoimmunity, right? So eating gluten and cow's dairy can raise auto, the chances of autoimmunity and, um, and autoimmune hypothyroidism. Um, lack of sleep, stress, travel, disruptions, circadian rhythm, and alcohol all can increase hair loss. So, and then sometimes guys, it's just cyclical. Like sometimes I just, I don't even know why. Right. And I just look down and it's like a cat died in my shower. And there's nothing to be done. And like, I know I'm not, never going to stop taking my testosterone cream. I've told, I told my practitioner, like, even if like I have thinner hair forever, I will never go back to not having my testosterone levels optimized. So I just will get a wig before that happens. And, you know, but, um, but yeah, so, um, oh, but I did learn something really new. If you are replacing your testosterone, most of us women are on creams. So I read something um, that if you inject your testosterone, like most of our men are, 
the conversion rate of the testosterone to DHT, which if that sounds familiar to you, it's the androgen that is associated with higher rates of hair loss in those who are genetically susceptible, right? So when you inject, when you have, when you're using testosterone, some of that will get con converted to DHT and it converts to a high, in, to a higher rate to DHT, three to four times higher rate to DHT when it is applied transdermally than when it's injected. So I'm about to have my first appointment with my new provider over at Modern Thyroid Clinic, and um, they are going to switch me over to injectable testosterone. And it's subcutaneous. So it's the tiny little shots. And I'm so excited to try it and see if it affects my hair loss. If it doesn't, I don't care. I might just go back to the cream. But if it, um, I have no problem injecting myself. So I'm kind of excited to try that. So if you're dealing with hair loss and you are using a testosterone cream, ask your doctor about trying subcutaneous injectable and you can inject it once or twice a week. You know, obviously it would be lower dose. Um, but yeah, you can look that up on, they can look up that study in PubMed too, on the conversion rate, the being to DHT being lower when it's injected versus uh, transdermally, which is exciting because we don't want to lose any more hair than we already have um insomnia so usually i see sleep improve on glp1s and that's because it is uh stabilizing blood sugar so a lot of what we see you know with poor sleep on, um, when blood sugar is just high and low and high and low it's waking people up it's spiking cortisol in the middle of the night and so semaglutide is stabilizing that blood sugar and allowing people to sleep through the night um sometimes they will see sort of like a spike in energy um especially once the body starts to produce ketones and you can run on glucose and ketones and you're metabolically flexible you tend to have more energy and people have a little may have a little bit of insomnia um, when that starts um but but nothing, I'm really not hearing a whole lot about that. Um, usually we find out with the, with the insomnia, it's women more like my age, right? Like 50 perimenopause, menopause, where we're dealing with low progesterone um, and progesterone really is critical for sleep. And we lose that as we get older and we're not ovulating as often, and we're just not making our own progesterone. And it is just terrible for our sleep. So replacing progesterone, talking to your doctor about that is incredibly helpful. Um, but I do a lot of other things for my sleep at night that you can talk to your doctor about possibly trying. I take melatonin, I take immediate release and I take extended release melatonin just to keep me asleep. Um, I had a coaching client tell me about this supplement. It's called Zen Sleep by Allergy Research. Um, she loved it. So I was like, I'm going to add it. So it has like B6 and 5-HTP and some other things. I, I don't know. I should have brought it to, so I could tell you, but look it up, see what you think, ask your doctor about it. Um, a couple of different magnesiums, magnesium glycinate and magnesium L3-inate. Um, glycine is another supplement that helps with sleep. And then I talked about the um, progesterone. There are the one that really helps with sleep is a prescription. It's called oral micronized progesterone. It's usually prescribed 100 to 200 milligrams a night, but I've seen prescriptions up to 400. Um, so ask your doctor about that. If you're over the age of 35 and experiencing symptoms of perimenopause, menopause, symptoms of low progesterone most commonly are insomnia and anxiety. So, um, check on those. And then the other things sort of just basic sleep hygiene, right? Avoid blue light, avoid alcohol, alcohol disrupts sleep massively. Anybody who's gotten an aura ring and who drinks at night, you just, you, you're immediately yelled at by the aura ring. Like you don't get any quality sleep if you drink at night. It's like even one drink. So, um, it's almost Christmas time, get you an aura ring and have a little come to Jesus on, on, on that. It's, it's not cool. Um, but, but that's huge. So if you're not sleeping, you're not going to lose weight. Um, 
and cool temperatures, dark blackout curtains, bed before midnight. We get all our deep sleep before midnight, you guys. So if you're not going to sleep before midnight, you're missing out on all that deep restorative sleep. And then getting first morning light, take a little 15 minute walk in the morning, get those that, a sunlight on your eyeballs that sets your circadian rhythm so that your body knows to start making melatonin, its own melatonin at the right time of day at night. Um, can you take metformin with semaglutide? Yes, you can. I've seen it over and over again. Sometimes I've seen it a couple of times will increase GI side effects for those patients. So they tend to either stop it or they will half the dose or they'll start taking it with food. Usually metformin is taken without food. Um, but yes, you see it all the time. If, if somebody is plateauing on, on uh, semaglutide and they don't want to raise their semaglutide dose, they might add in, the doctor might add in uh, a metformin. Um, how do you know it's safe to stop semaglutide or GLP-1 medications without regaining weight? So you check, check your labs. That's what I would recommend, right? The two things, right? Has your metabolism healed? Where's your fasting insulin? Where's your HSCRP, your lipids, your glucose, your, uh, HbA1c? Have you changed your diet and lifestyle? That's really critical. So if you've been, maybe you started on these medications and you just needed a quick win, but you haven't quite gotten there to change, clean out the junk food and change your diet and lifestyle it may not be time to, to go off of them or you, you can go off of them anytime, right? That's your choice, but you may not be successful going off of them if you haven't done that work. Um, and, and, and change that in the background because, and then that's what the studies show. Like if you lose the weight, you go off of them, you haven't changed the diet and lifestyle and you're still eating, a, you know, high carb, high sugar diet, high carb diet, you are going to gain it all back. And we don't want that. Um, GLP one contraindications, you, they have not studied it in pregnant breastfeeding or women trying to conceive, so it's not recommended for that. Um, I think this is about to change. They said history of medullary thyroid carcinoma or multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type two. These are two very rare forms of thyroid cancer. Um, an article just posted today shows actually no increased risk of uh, thyroid cancer of patients on GLP-1s versus insulin. So in fact, they might have a reduced risk of thyroid cancer on GLP-1s. So I think this is, I think we're just, again, we're getting more and more information about these medications and this is great news. Um, but if you have any issues, you know, you can always ask your doctor for, um, a, you know, a, a lab order for a thyroid scan and you can go check just in case we've not, I've not seen any issues with thyroid cancer in any of the patients that I've worked with in these medications, but you never know. Um, you know, if you have a history of pancre recent pancreatitis, active gallbladder disease, um, severe GI distress, active kidney disease, um, you know, your doctor may say, oh, maybe, maybe not. They may or may not be comfortable in giving it to you. They may want you starting on a lower dose. They may want you um, more supervised, doing labs more often. Just listen to whatever they say. They want to try to keep you safe. The other one that I've learned recently is you're going to want to avoid injecting one week before surgery or any general anesthesia because these medications slow gastric emptying and you're supposed to be fasted for general anesthesia. And so the, what they don't want is having, you know, oh, but I was, I didn't eat the night before, but you still, because your, your um, gastric emptying was slower, maybe you did still have some food in your stomach, whereas you wouldn't have before. So they recommend a week before surgery and a general anesthesia do not inject that week. Um, and then we talked about mood changes. Mostly I'm seeing mood 
improvements and stabilization on these medications because they're stabilizing blood sugar. So you can imagine they're, they're stabilizing your mood and their, um, and your energy and lowering inflammation and depression and anxiety, um, have been found to be sort of inflammatory brain conditions in a lot of ways. Um, but there have been a few reports of increases in depression. And I, and I, we've, we've discussed this with a lot of, I've discussed it with a lot of my coaching clients. And I think what's happening here is, and that no one is talking about is that, um, look, binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in the United States. And nobody talks about it because it is, there's so much shame attached to it. And there really should not be because, um, look over 60% of the food that we are constantly surrounded by is absolute junk processed hyper palatable food with added sugar to it to make it addictive to us. Like if you put rats in a maze, you can look this up too, and you give them a choice between sugar and meth and cocaine and, uh, and um, opioids, they will choose the sugar every time rats will. So look, you know, processed food companies know that they can use these cheap addictive ingredients. They can um, get us hooked and they will profit, profit enormously. And then I guess pharmaceutical companies can profit off of us later. Um, so it is, it's really tricky when we're dealing with a substance that is, and I'm calling, because these are food-like substances truly, and they are addictive when you add sugar and, and excess carbs like this. They're being eaten not to, not for the nutritional value, but very often they're being eaten for emotional reasons, right? There's a lot of chronic stress in this country. People are overworked, underpaid, exhausted. Maybe the only time they feel any joy in a day is when they sit down with a candy bar or a, you know, a, you know, a shake and a fry from, from, from some fast food restaurant, right? So we're not really... We, we're going to have to dive deeper into these psychological issues and the issues behind food addiction. Um, and until we have serious policy changes around these foods that are super addictive and are killing the people in this country, um, first of all, I'd like the shame of being addicted to these things to be eliminated. It's ridiculous. Um, but until we're going to tax junk food, like we tax cigarettes and until broccoli is, you know, organic broccoli is basically free and subsidized by the government. Um, I don't know what our solution is. Um, at least we have semaglutide. Yes, it's another pharmaceutical, but at least it's a pharmaceutical that's allowing a lot of patients to get off five other pharmaceuticals, right? Um, and actually improve the quality of their life and their health. So this is really tricky. There's a, a YouTuber that I love. She's a Canadian um, called Big Girl Talking. She has a video called Why I Hate Ozempic. And I, um, when you, you dive into it, you realize it's, it's her talking about, well, it, Ozempic has been life-changing for me. It has saved my life. I, you know, I'm no longer, you know, obese. And I, been, she's been on it for quite a while and chronicling her journey. But she talks about what the hardest thing was, is it took away her coping mechanism, right? Like this was her food was her, was her comfort. And then if you don't have the same appetite you had before, where do you put those feelings? Right. So it's really important. I think so practitioners out there um, or any patients who are listening to this, if you do have, you know, issues with depression, or you are feeling like a little off or anxious because, um, and you're maybe not making the connection between not ha having the same coping um, outlets that you did before, because you're just 
you're not craving, the cravings are gone, right? That it's okay that that is, that is normal and natural and that it's okay to reach out for help and to talk to your provider about that. Um, there is so much help out there. And I think you guys, if you can join a program that has group um, health coaching, I just highly recommend it. It is incredible to see how helpful you are to each other. Um, because sometimes we think we're all alone in something and we're never all alone. We are not. Um, and, um, I think these medications can be so incredibly powerful, but to the extent that we can do them safely, we can um, listen to the patient, find out how they're feeling, you know, both physically and emotionally. We can refer out if for, you know, therapy support if needed. Um, but sometimes just being heard in group health coaching therapy is extremely helpful. Hearing what your peers are doing to minimize side effects, even sharing recipes, um, sharing your wins, find, find a group like that. Um, and those are the people I'm seeing who are really doing well on these medications, um, who are, you know, sharing their DEXA scans. They're, they're maintaining their muscle mass and they're like, Oh, you're, you did a DEXA scan. I'm going to go do a DEXA scan. Oh, my muscle mass is actually going up on semaglutide too. Cause I've been doing weightlifting and I've been getting my hundred grams of protein in every day. So, um, it just gives you ideas and keeps you motivated. Um, so there's a lot out there. Um, if you can follow me on Instagram at Sally Doll Sykes, um, S-A-L-L-Y-D-A-H-L-S-Y-K-E-S. Um, and for more information, but this has been a nice long um, episode. And we've really got into the weeds on GLP-1 medications and weight loss. I really hope this was helpful. Um, I hope you'll get in touch, either DM me on Instagram, or you can email me at Sally, uh, it's sallydollsykes at gmail.com. Um, and let me know if you have any other questions. I can do a part two anytime on these medications. And it, I'm sure that we will, because we're constantly learning more. And um, just like we did today about the, um, the thyroid cancer issue, that's really great news. So I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of your day and stay in touch. Let me know what you would like to hear me talk about next. Um, I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your comments. Um, how can I help you? Because this podcast is all about you and um, I, I'm here to help you get optimized. So have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.